Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me as always is the mortal busboy who has waited centuries to do this episode, Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? I'm good. As longtime listeners to the podcast know, I am a cat with human intelligence, <laughs> having been cursed by witches centuries. But you know what? I'm good with a computer because I know how to manipulate a mouse. Waka waka. Love it. Love it. Love it. Well, what movie are we tackling today, Larry? We are tackling the original Hocus Pocus from 1993. And when you tell me it's from 1993, I'm like, huh, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago to me mentally. And yet, yeah. it is. I think the first time I saw this movie was in the 2000s. I was at a Halloween party with a bunch of people, and they were kind of playing it in the background. And I was like, oh, I've never seen this. They're like, oh, it's our favorite. And so maybe like in 2010, maybe I saw it for the first time. I may have seen it in the theaters. I think I did. Ah! I think I did. I, I can't swear to it. What did you find <laughs> out about Hocus Pocus in your research? Well, I found out a lot of things. Hocus Pocus actually didn't do well for Disney when it was released in July of 1993. I mean, nothing. There are fireworks <laughs> in this movie, right? Uh, right. I mean, it lost money at the box office. And obviously, I think it's because the movie was released in July and not October. The movie was also released against Free Willy, mm -hmm. which was huge. It's hard to understate how big Free Willy was as a family movie in 1993. It grossed nearly $154 million on a $20 million budget. And it definitely had a theme more in line with a summer movie, right? However, the film Hocus Pocus gained a bit of a cult following with millennials who fell in love with the picture after annual screenings on the Disney Channel and ABC Family or Freeform. And so, yeah, it's kind of become this thing. Sure. And I mean, obviously, they just recently released a sequel to it, which we will not be discussing other than to note that there is one. Right, right. And that you should probably watch it if you like this movie. There's a great little documentary called Hocus Pocus Begin the Magic, which was created for television in 1994. Producer David Kirshner came up with the idea for this movie as he was sitting outside his house with his daughter and a neighbor's black cat happened by. And so Kirshner tells his daughter, like we do as parents, a story about the cat, that he was once a boy who was changed into a cat 300 years ago by three witches. And it, it got Kirshner's wheels turning. So he, go, he gets a pitch with Disney, and before the pitch meeting... He turns the meeting room into this Halloween spectacle. He suspends brooms from the ceiling. He got the kids in the neighborhood to draw pictures of black cats. And he cuts the slit into a 15-pound bag of candy corn suspended above the table so it spills out during his pitch. When the Disney executives arrived, Kirshner explains his idea for the movie, pulls all of his stunts, and as he leaves and heads for the car, one of the executives bolts out of the office building, runs out after him, and begs him not to take the pitch anywhere else that Disney was indeed on board. And then said, we will release 4th of July weekend. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Sorry, I'm, I'm still hung up on your first fact. <laughs> I know, me too. So Omri Katz, who plays Max, gets this part because Leonardo DiCaprio turned it down to play in uh, What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Okay. So, yeah. And Katz, if you dig into him a little bit, he also played J.R. Ewing's son on the hit TV show Dallas. He plays John Ross. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. Also, Gary and Penny Marshall make uncredited appearances in this movie. Gary as the master devil and Penny as the Medusa lady. So they're sort of the neighbors. They are great in this. They're fantastic in this. They're, and it's just so brilliant. So good. I didn't want to leave that house. I was like, let's <laughs> stay. The, you know, sure, witches. But let's stay here. <laughs> Well, they're just so terrific as actors. Mm -hmm. So when asked in a Reddit thread about the cult status of Hocus Pocus, Bette Midler wrote, shocked. I'm totally shocked. All of us are just stunned. Kathy, Sarah, Jessica, and I have talked about it. We are totally thrilled to death because when it came out, it laid a tiny bit of an egg, so we didn't expect much. And now look at it. October is Hocus Pocus month. That's pretty great. Ah, I thought it was awesome. Cool. Shall we get into plot? We surely shall. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna be snarky here. This may be the first conversation that anyone has ever had about the plot of Hocus Pocus. <laughs> because I'm going to tell you, viewers, I have come to the conclusion that this story got made up as it went along. There are great parts of this movie that I really, really enjoy, but I get not lost in the weeds, but you'll see. We'll do it. So let's yeah, start. Let's as we always do with the Manish Tana, and we are asking mm-hmm. why this movie begins exactly where it begins. And this, yeah, I hear Andy like taking intake because <laughs> she's ready. Go for it, Andy. Why does this movie begin where it begins? Well, I don't know why, but I know what. So tell us that. where does it begin? What? Yeah. So it begins with a traditional storybook opening, right? We have the expository prologue almost and in a lot of ways like we've had in other movies like at disney movies like uh, cinderella or sleeping beauty right sure but so we meet this boy thackeray banks and he is trying to prevent the sanderson sisters in 17th century salem from draining the life force of his sister emily and the town ends up executing the sisters by hanging them right for the murder of emily and thackeray But before they're killed, Winifred casts a spell that will bring the witches back to life on All Hallows' Eve if a virgin lights this black flame candle. Oh, and Thackeray's turned into a cat in there somewhere, too. And made immortal. Right, yes. We'll be a cat forever. So that exposition happens in the first 12 minutes of this movie, and then we're in a classroom hearing a high school teacher talk about the Sanderson sisters and Halloween. Before we get there... Because that's the Manish Tana. We begin with the story of what happened centuries ago in Salem, right? Right. And so the question is, do we need to see this? Why did they want to start us here? And I'm going to argue both sides of this for a little bit. So on the one hand, I would argue we need none of this. Not one (laughs) bit of the time in Salem. Because we could just start with Max poo-pooing a story about witches, and the first time we see the Sanderson sisters is when he summons them in the house. We could do that, and 
the fact that the cat can talk, all we need is the cat to say, yeah, I, I crossed the Sanderson sisters. They turned me into a cat and made me live forever. We don't need 12 minutes of this. Right. So why have it? And the answer that I've come up with is at this part of Disney movies, at this time, and even to a, today to a, great, to a degree, Disney used to do movies where they did a long wind-up to the thing you wanted to see. Like, when mm-hmm. we talk Herbie, we don't necessarily see gain sentience for a while. And I right. think the thinking in screenwriting at the time is, we need to put whatever it is front and center. Whatever the MacGuffin is, it needs to be there from the beginning, because we don't want the audience to get bored waiting for it. I think they mm-hmm. feel that audiences have changed and kind of need that bit up front. Yeah, and I think you're right, Larry. I think with the understanding that this is a family movie, too, that maybe kids might get lost if we don't give them all the exposition up front. And also, the witches are the most interesting part of the story. They're far more entertaining than Max, right? And so maybe if we tempt them with that, it's almost like Max isn't a believer, but then there's some dramatic irony built in. Like, we know the Sanderson sisters are real, and there's might build a little anticipation there, maybe. Yeah, I think that's right. I disagree with this approach, but look, Hocus Pocus is now a big success, (laughs) so it is what it is. Because I think we might get a better payoff if maybe we experience the witches without getting their full visual. Mm -hmm. We see them in shadows, maybe they're in hoods, and we don't actually see their full faces. We hear the song. Yes. You know, something along the lines, so you save the reveal of what they actually look like. For the, so you can still get a taste of it early on. I also think tonally, this Manash Tana sets us up to believe we're going to see a much darker movie than we actually are going to get later on. We watch, right. <laughs> we watch a child's life force get drained away from her, and it is not restored. Well, and there's an execution. <laughs> there is a triple hanging, which That's you guys right. do all remember how Toy Story began with the triple hanging. I mean, like, what children's movie doesn't? We watch a brother lose his sister. There's talk of the devil. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it is, I'm surprised this is a Disney movie as opposed to maybe a Touchstone movie. Yeah, it was an interesting choice for sure, I think. All right, let's continue with plot. On this one. Let's do it. So, now we're in modern day, but we're still in exposition, because that first exposition was about Salem. Now we need to actually see Salem today, where our movie takes place. And Mm -hmm. we see it primarily through the young boy named Max, who has recently moved to Salem from Los Angeles. As you know, like, the tech companies all, I think, moved to Salem right out of the valley. (laughs) (laughs) Job opportunities are in Salem. What can I tell you? Thriving, thriving career choice. (laughs) You go where the job is. That's right. That's right. Okay. But they're in Salem. (laughs) And when we actually cut to the future, we're in class where his teacher has been telling the story of the Sanderson sisters and the boy who was turned into a cat to the class as part of what I hope is the English literature class, but may Mm -hmm. in fact be the history class at this school. It's not clear what the <laughs> curriculum is, and I'm going to just out and out say it, this school needs more STEM. 
Come on. Larry. Okay, sorry. <laughs> when he left, are you saying he's right to be a skeptic? Is that what you're saying? Max is right to be skeptical. He is a high school age boy, and when he's like, "But witches aren't real," everyone. <laughs> Faints on their fainting couches, needing to be revived, because how (laughs) dare you? And this is school, and we believe in witches here. Which, ultimately, ultimately I'm wrong on, because in this universe, witches are real, and we should believe in them, except maybe we don't believe in them when someone says witch. Anyway, moving forward. (laughs) We also see that he's got a crush on the girl at school. And he, like, gives her the number, and she gives it back. They're flirty, but in a Nothing's safe... Nothing's happening. In a, yeah, right. in a safe kind of way. She's kind of into him, but kind of not. He is bullied by a couple of bullies who take his shoes from him. He's mm-hmm. got a sister at home who, like, hides in his closet, waits for him to fantasize about his girlfriend, and then jumps <laughs> out and says, Boo! She's precocious, and he is tasked with, it's Halloween, you need to take your little sister trick-or-treating. Which he says he will not do, but then does. Mom and Dad are going to a dance party that evening, so they can't do it. You know, fine. It just occurs to me that the thing about the Manishana, the thing about that prologue is that in Salem, is that it does set up a theme of the need to sort of protect your sister at all costs. I think that's right. I think that's right. And so that's kind of a thing that it's going to be a lesson that he's going to learn later. Except the first brother really, like, tried to protect his sister and didn't need to. He wasn't neglectful in any way. Right. He just didn't succeed. But yes, I think we are absolutely supposed to draw that parallel. And even right. with the Sanderson sisters, that the idea of having a sister is important, right? Right. We And we also need to get the sisters gone so they can stage their comeback, sure. I guess. But you're right. We could start with Max. Yeah. Agree. One thing leads to another. And then we're going to get to the inciting incident here. And Andy, do you want to pinpoint the inciting incident for us? Well, it's hard because I think the movie wants us to think that it's when Max and Danny go to the rich house, which is Allison's house, right? Mm -hmm. Or when Max actually takes her trick-or-treating. But I don't think it happens, Larry, until about the 30-minute mark. I agree. that's late. That's late. It's really late. And the thing that he does that's the inciting incident, would you agree with me, is he lights the black flame candle. Yeah, Absolutely. It's what resurrects the Sanderson sisters back to the living, right? Yes. And unfortunately, guys, you know how I am, listeners. I get snarky. That doesn't mean I didn't enjoy this movie. <laughs> he has no reason to light that candle. They both ask him not to. He just does it for no reason. And see, that's the thing that I wish we had in the exposition of Max's character. And we can talk about that more when we get to character. Like, why does Max make the choices that he makes? Right. Because we don't know anything. Like, we've spent a whole lot of time, but we don't know why. Why does he light the candle? Why does he do anything? It's just so puzzling. It's so puzzling. I mean, oh, because he's from Los Angeles. That's it. (laughs) I mean, people from Los Angeles are known for this. They break into museums and light candles. I mean, that's such a stereotype. I should have done a racist roundup with it. But 
is. He lights yes. the candle. It brings back the Sanderson sisters. They reemerge on the scene. They kind of capture his sister, but he manages to get everybody free by tricking them into magic, calling something the reign of death. He lights his lighter. The sprinkler system goes off. They believe that they're going to exactly. die in the rain. They run. They meet the talking cat. Talking cat leads them to the cemetery, which is hallowed ground. The witches come after them. They almost capture them. They escape the witches. And most of the plot is the witches almost capture them. They escape the witches. It happens again and again in various different locations. At least three times. Danny is kind of caught by the Sanderson sisters, right? Repeatedly. They also, and this is an important plot point, they have stolen the book which is the only way that Winnie, the leader of the Sanderson sisters, knows how to cast the spell that will make them immortal. Uh And more importantly, survive this one evening, because if they don't get some more life energy, they're going directly back to hell, which they also say they love it there. I don't, I'm a little, I'm a little confused about the stakes. Right, right, right. So, the witches do a bunch of things. They summon the zombie boyfriend of that was the lover of both Winnie and what's Sarah Jessica Parker's witch name? Sarah. Is it, Sarah. Oh, <laughs> it's hard to remember. I know. I know. To help in the escapades, it doesn't really help. They ride the bus. They go through town. They all show up at the party, but ultimately, like after the fourth or fifth attempt. Max gets the witches into the pottery shed and incinerates them. In the kiln, right? In the kiln. Which I didn't know that that was a... So I didn't know that that was a kiln. And I guess I'd I'd never seen that part of this movie. I missed it. And I'm watching, and I was like, how does he know there's a kiln there? Again... he's new to this school. Like, how does he know? very clearly an arts-based school with no STEM. They don't have a science lab, but they do have a pottery kiln. And the budget, I want to go over the budget. I want to go over the budget, the curriculum, (laughs) the objectives. I want to talk about the school administration, all of it. But the payoff, I mean, that's a payoff, right? And so it would have been really great to see him like in pottery class or like in a, maybe that's his thing. You know, maybe he's being bullied because he likes art or whatever. I mean, it seems so simple. But there's a lot of payoffs with Max, like with the setting things on fire and the sprinkler system comes on, right? Like, that feels like a payoff. If there's one thing that we learned from this movie, kids, always have fire immediately available. You never know what you're going to need to defend yourself with the pure elemental force of fire. And that's one to grow so, yeah, up. So the more you know. So the setup, though, there are payoffs for how Max acts in this rising action, how he thwarts the witches. But I want to see that set up so that it's like, oh, of course he does that. That makes sense. And I'm with him, as opposed to just this sort of, like you said earlier, it's sort of a, putting words in your mouth, but it's sort of patchwork of different scenes together that don't really gel. Like, they don't really follow each other. It's just, oh, we should write a scene where he does this. Oh, we should write a scene where he does that. And they don't really, the setups and payoffs just really aren't there. 
you have to do a lot of shrugging. And I'm like, I guess this is how it works. But you don't see it coming necessarily, not because it's a twist, but just because you don't know what the rules are at any given point. Correct. Correct. So this movie does something that I think the last time we saw a movie do this was Herbie Rides Again. It has a false climax and then Mm -hmm. a real climax. Mm -hmm. The movie leads us to believe that the Sanderson sisters have been destroyed because we Mm -hmm. saw them burn up and we saw them turn into smoke. And movies have trained us that that really is... Like the end. When the witch melts in the Wizard of Oz and she's a puddle, you don't expect her to reform. They go back to the house. They adopt the cat and make him a member of the family. They all fall asleep together. Mm-hmm. But it turns out the witches aren't dead. They have the ability to reverse film and have the smoke go back down into the chimney and reform and emerge from the pottery shed unharmed. But demoralized because they've completely lost track of the book and have decided they're just going to go back to their cottage and Mm -hmm. wait to die, more or less. They're done. They're grasping at straws. They're going to try to come up with the potion, but they don't remember how to make it. Right. And the reason they're doing this, I mean, you mentioned the stakes earlier, but I think the stakes for them is they want to be beautiful again. They want to be young again. And so if they can extract the life force of a bunch of children, then they can be young again, right? And if by dawn they don't get any life force, they go directly back to hell. We've been told that too. Back to hell, and they're just ugly. Which again, they like. They like hell. But so I'm not sure but why. You don't, they, but what, maybe they don't want to be ugly in hell. You know, maybe hell is a nice place to visit. If you're pretty, right? You know, you want a summer home in hell, but you don't You don't want to claim it as your primary. You want to be yeah. registered to vote in Salem because that's where your vote matters. The, the elections in hell are rigged. 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 All rigged. Yeah. Okay. Man, I am in a mood. <laughs> this is so great. Okay. I love it. Okay, so the climax. But that's the false climax. But in fact... But the witches still don't know how to get there. And Winifred's like, book, book, give me a sign. But the book doesn't give a sign. Yeah. Back at the Denison's house, Allison says, you know what? I feel bad for this cat boy. Why don't we open up the book? And Max says, well, you know, we were told not to open up the book. And she says, yeah, but the witches are dead. Let's open it up. They open it up and suddenly orange light floods the sky. And now the witches are back on the hunt, yeah. and guess what? They know what? where the book is, right? They kidnap his sister again, and mm-hmm. they get the book. So right. this is the new climax. It's the final confrontation-ish between mm-hmm. the witches and Max and Allison and Danny. But even within this final confrontation... They get the book and Danny back, and then, you're never going to believe this, Andy, the witches get, <laughs> capture his sister again. 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 Right, right, right. Right, because she leaves the salt circle, and yeah. Again, they capture her. Yeah. And with one yeah. more, one more kidnapping, she gets a free pizza. That's how it works. <laughs> She's got one more card on her stamp. <laughs> so, Max... <laughs> decides to get the potion. He gets the yes. what little bit of potion they have left. I'm going to zoom mm-hmm. us through this because 
I got to. Yeah. Yeah. He decides to drink it so that they can't suck the life force out of his sister, but can suck the life force out of him. Right. This is the big climax, but it actually turns out he's outsmarted them because he goes to... I mean, it took me a while to figure out why Winifred was turning to stone in that particular area. And it's because it's hallowed ground, which we've been told they can't stand on. Right. And she doesn't realize she's standing on it. I didn't know that hallowed ground turned witches into statues. But now you know. But now you know. I don't know what to say about that. I mean, eventually that stone does turn to dust, too. I mean, it explodes as well. I also forgot the whole thing. The zombie is now on their side. That happened, too. (laughs) He switched sides. You think you know a guy, you bring him back from the dead as your slave, and he still turns on you. Bam. Guys, is this really about how men can't be trusted? It may be. It may be. All right. So the climax would be, then, final battle, sun rises, Winifred can't suck the life out of Max. Sanderson's sisters turned to stone and dust, right? Yes. Would you call the rest of this falling action? The rest of it is falling action. Even though it has some emotional gravitas, right? I'll tell you, the one place where I did get teary was when the cat was dead. And not when he was dead, but we see the ghost of the boy and the ghost of his sister comes and says, I've been waiting for you all this time. Oh my gosh. I started to, like, my eyes got (laughs) moist and I'm like, why am I this person? Why am I letting this movie... This movie has not really been about this, but yeah, right. I am just a sucker for a brother-sister reunion in heaven. That's just... Yeah, and there are two repairs, I guess. So Max and Danny repair their relationship there, too. Yes, they tell each other they love each other. Right. Billy goes back into his grave, which he seems happy to do, which is funny. Yeah. Binks is dead, right? But the but spell's broken. Like, we're yeah. glad he's dead, because he's but happy then, you're dead. But, right. And then Binks thanks Max for lighting the candle that he spent 300 years guarding so no one would light the candle. You know, like sometimes the bad action somebody does. I mean, sure, traumatic experience for many people over the course of this evening. They are going to be in therapy for the rest of their lives (laughs) talking about how like they're constantly afraid that witches will kidnap them. Yeah. Good job there, Max. Yeah, it was really like, I thought that was really interesting. I also thought it was really interesting that they chose to end the last character we see isn't Max, it's Danny. Yeah. And then we see, the, of course, the gates, and then, you know, we get the credits. But I was like, how interesting that that was a choice, because you would think if Max is the protagonist, that we would end on Max as a changed person. Right? And actually, we don't even end there because we go to the credits and we see all right. the parents who have been magically enchanted into dancing all night have stopped dancing and are now heading home. Right. And then we see that the two bullies are still in cages in the witch's house singing Row, That's Row, right. Row Your Boat as a Round. But then we zoom in on the book and the eye of the book opens, promising us that there will be a sequel to this movie 23 years later. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And they Ah. delivered on that promise. We just had to wait. (laughs) We are the immortal cat boys waiting between Hocus Pocus sequels. And that is the plot, Andy. So the characters of this movie, we have Maximilian or Max Dennison. It kind of bothers me, I will say, when we have a script, we should probably pick one name and stick to that one name, unless there's a reason for changing that person's name that is plot relevant. 
It's just me talking. Yeah. Omri Katz, who plays Max, the kid hero. I mean, he's just sort of a normal adolescent who apparently knows how to defeat witches. And again, I'll say it again, like with all the exposition we get, we don't know much about this guy. I want to take a moment just to delineate between two things, because I believe this to be true about everybody that we talk about in this movie. The acting is what makes this movie, the performances delivered, are fantastic. I think Omri is good in his role. I think think the little sister is amazing. I think Allison is great. I I think there is so many good performances here that when Mm -hmm. when I talk about the things I don't like about the characters, it should not reflect upon how great the casting is amazing oh yes i mean it's outstanding and 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 they make this movie like they create a world that doesn't exist on the page as you read it i wonder though andy like i love that this movie is set in salem yeah part of me thinks that because it's set in salem it makes the protagonist as given not being from this place boring compared to the rest of the world that he's mm-hmm. inhabiting. I wonder if you flip this, and it was about a Salem kid who moved to Los Angeles, where no one believes in witches, but because he was raised in Salem, he knows about these things. Mm-hmm. Like, if we might get a little more interesting out of him. But you're right, he is generic leading man. It occurs to me that he's a fish out of water, right? Yes. But so are the Sanderson sisters, and he's competing with them right, for the page, right? And they're far more interesting as fish out of water because they've come back from the dead than he is just moving across the country. So I think you're right. I think it would be interesting to give him sort of a knowing, like, what does he know about witches? Like, he's been around them, like, his whole life. And maybe he tries to sell people in L.A. and they're like, oh, that's crazy. And then maybe he opens a book in a museum or something, you know, whatever, and then finds something that way. And is more of a leader in this way. I think about the movie Goonies, the Goonies, when I watch this movie. Mm-hmm. Because, I, again, there's the adolescents who are trying to defeat kind of evil to, they're on a mission, Right. And in the Goonies, like, they come loaded with information because their dad owns a museum and he knows these things and whatever. And so they can always rely on their dad. But in this movie, they don't really even seem to have a relationship with their parents. It seems to be like they're just sort of... So, yeah, I I think there's some missed opportunities here for sure. I want to talk about his flaws. He's got... I actually think he has three. The first is he's not a great big brother. Although, I'm going to tell you, He's okay. He's not yeah. He's not bullying his little sister. And his little sister is kind of a brat, you know, mm-hmm. and teases him pretty relentlessly throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. But he has stuff to learn about being a better protector and big brother to her. His second flaw is an inability to stand up to the bullies, Right. Like, that Mm -hmm. there are two bullies. At one point, they bully his sister, and he's not really in a place to stand up to them the way that she wants him to. And I guess those two things go together. Right. And listen, I don't know the moment where he finds his courage in -hmm. this movie, but I think that's what we're supposed to be watching for. We're supposed to be watching for our protagonist turn into our hero. But I think it happens too fast. I think it happens again, way too fast. Again, he's got the fire up at the 
he's thwarting the witches. He's like, but he knows how to do these things. And again, I just think it's a miss. I keep saying it, but I think it's a miss when it comes to the exposition because we need to know more about him to make that more believable. What this story needs for him is they spend most of the movie running from the witches just like he ran from the bullies. And there needs Uh to be a pivot point where it looks like they can run from the witches. And he says, we have to stop running from them. We have to stand our ground and fight them. Well, and that might be where the kiln scene comes in, right? Except that's not the real climax, right? It's the fake climax. Mm -hmm. Here is his third flaw, and I don't want to go too far into it, but we have to talk about it. Max's third flaw is that he's a virgin. Yeah. It is repeatedly said throughout this constantly, movie, constantly, constantly being made fun of that he has not had physical relations yet. And he's, oh, he's 15 years old. He's 15. Yikes. Yikes. At one point, <laughs> he talks to someone who he believes to be a police officer, and the police officer says, You're a virgin? Really? Yeah. I mean,. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. The candle had to be lit by a virgin. Like, they just keep to the point where my, I was watching this with my youngest son, and I kind of regretted it because he got really fascinated about, like, what is a virgin and why is that a <laughs> And they right. are shaming him throughout this movie for his virginity. We get to the climax where he drinks the potion, and Winnie yeah. tr- starts to try to suck the life from him. But she can't. And in my head, I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, he's about to say to her, it's not working, is it? You want to know why? I'm not a virgin anymore. Right. (laughs) Which, I mean, we saw him go to bed with Allison and and they were cuddly. It didn't look, look, there's nothing pornographic or lustful. It's a very chaste sleeping scene. But I'm. I'm just like, yeah, his I mean, it's... sexual status is such an important plot point in this movie. And even even as, like, the ghosts are leaving, they're like, thank you, virgin boy. They, like, get one more, like, eh, hey, hey, you've never had sex thing in it. I don't think they're celebrating his virginity. I think they're shaming him throughout the movie for it. And it is yeah, weird for a Disney movie. It's super weird. It's super weird. That is my one, like, I, I think this movie's fun and watchable. But it that is fun and watchable. Makes, that always kind of makes me kind of ick. Gives an ick factor. And it's just not that funny a joke, honestly. No, it's not. It's not. If he was 25, maybe that joke would land a little bit better. I still yeah. don't love it. If it was Steve Carell and this was the 40-year-old virgin fights the witches, which, by the way, let's let's just call it. That'll be my pitch. No, it won't. Like that. Although that mashup is like now in my head, but it's just, it is a weird thing to have as a flaw for your character in a Disney movie. And correct, correct. That's what I have to say about Max. Just seems off brand, doesn't it? It All really right. does. So Danny Dennison, who played by I think amazingly by Thora Birch, who. She's the wisecracking little sister. She has no filter. She's, again, she's attacked by the Sanderson sisters on three separate occasions. She's always defiant. She never gives in. She The thing I think that's most touching about her performance is the time when she leaves the salt circle to get Billy's head back for him. Yeah. She leaves that moment. Like, she's protected and she's taken care of, but she leaves it because 
Billy's hurting and she, you know, I think it's really sweet. And I mean, she's the, you know, when the cat dies and she's very sad, she has moments where she has great moments in this movie. And I think she just really carries it off really well. And I would argue she might have better moments than Max does and more exposition than he does. My favorite moment for her is when the witches have suddenly summoned and she's in a witch outfit and they find her because mm-hmm. she's a child and they know she's a child. She goes, oh, sisters, I am the ones who summoned the... Like, she immediately <laughs> comes up. Uh, it doesn't work. Yeah. No. And it doesn't work. It should work, because later on, they are going to see other kids in costumes and believe them to be what they are in their costumes. But this time, it doesn't work. But I thought, like, good for her. She had a strategy right away. In her scenes with the Sanderson sisters, she holds her own and is a strong scene partner for them. I would not be as strong a scene partner for Bette Midler if she was staring at me the way that, that she's staring at this little girl. Yeah, she really has chops and makes it and holds her own. And it's great. Let's talk about the Sanderson sisters. You know, we have Winifred, who is played by Bette Midler. We mm-hmm. have Sarah, played by Sarah Jessica Parker. We have Mary, uh, who's played by Kathy Najimy. What do we think? The movie is inconsistent about whether we're supposed to fear them or not, I think. They are fun. The scene mm-hmm. that has absolutely nothing to do in the plot when they are in the house where they think they're in the house of the devil <laughs> is an amazing Comedy scene. gold. Comedy gold. I wouldn't mind a movie that was more focused on that. These witches out of yeah. place, out of their time. And I do think we're supposed to parallel their sibling relationship to the sibling relationship between Max and Danny. Yeah. Where they are kind of protecting each other it does seem like one sister is way more dominant over the other two that they're right but you would expect at a certain point in the movie for their sisterly bond to be exposed as false because Uh they are not capable of truly loving each other the way max and danny do interesting they may be more powerful together and that's why they're together But what I wanted to see happen, and there are hints that it might, I wanted to see signs that conflict existed, resentments existed between them, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that ultimately what was going to tear them apart was that there would be only enough potion for one of them to live, and then Mm -hmm. they'd start fighting amongst each other to be the one who survived. So interestingly to me, I was just thinking about this as you were talking, but there are three of them, right? Yes. And in a way, they're kind of like the female witch versions of the Three Stooges, maybe? I could see that. I mean, you have kind of the Mo character who's clearly in charge and drives everything, and then you have kind of this brainless... Curly. And then you have this kind of, Yeah, right? And But then you also... Mary, I would say, the one that's able to sniff out children... She's definitely the comic relief in a curly kind of way. So it's kind of funny to me, I guess. I I think so. There's like a big hint that there was an issue between Winifred and Sarah. Winnie and Sarah. Right. Which was about that zombie boyfriend who was supposedly Winnie's boyfriend, but Sarah right. stole her from him. And it feels like that's something that could have resurfaced and drawn a wedge between them. I think what's missing is conflict. There's like a lot of like bits, but there's no real conflict. And and there's opportunity for that because look at Sarah. She's this kind of brainless 
beauty. I mean, you could easily say there's kind of a dumb blonde trope or whatever, but she reminds me a little bit of like Shakespeare's Ophelia Mm -hmm. where she's childlike and mad, but she's also very dangerous. And she sings these lullabies to lure children. That's her kind of superpower, I guess. And you would, it'd be interesting to see Winifred and Sarah in sort of a head to head battle over the potion, right? I think all three of them need to be at each other's throats fighting for that one little bit of potion that'll let them survive. I just really, I think that's where the movie is supposed to go. I have not seen Hocus Pocus 2 viewers, so if it happens there, I'm blind to it. I'm not aware of it. I've seen it, but I'll shut my brain off to it. But yeah, it's an interesting, interesting thing. So let's talk about Allison a little bit. She starts by saying, I don't want to have anything to do with this. We shouldn't break into this place. We shouldn't be here, you know, and then, oh, we should open this book (laughs) because, you know, they're dead. (laughs) It's interesting to me. It's kind of an interesting arc for her. I guess. I mean, one of the things about some of these choices is they're not necessarily choices that come out of character. (laughs) Yeah. And some of the discoveries that happen don't come out of character necessarily either, I think. I honestly wonder if that moment would have been better if Danny had been the one to open up the book instead of Allison. She's the youngest. She's Uh the one most connected to Binks the Cat. And she's the most like Emily in the prologue, right? Mm -hmm. If we're looking at a direct analogy between Emily and Thackeray Binks to Max and Danny, she makes the sense that she would do that. That she'd be the one that would do that. I mean, so the thing about Allison is... So I appreciate that she is an equal contributor to the team and that Mm -hmm. she doesn't get kidnapped a lot. She is Max's partner throughout this movie, even defends him. At one point, Sarah is going for Max, and there's sort sort of a lascivious quality to the idea of playing with this teenage boy from her perspective. And Allison comes out and whacks her over the head with the broom. Right? Mm-hmm, like to right. De- in a kind of stay away from my boy sort of thing. But also, like, <laughs> I right. like them as partners. I wish they kissed. There's a scene where they almost kiss, but we never, at- and it gets interrupted by, you know, the witches kidnapping the little right. sister or whatever. But I would have liked to kiss. I always like a yeah. kiss. Okay. So, <laughs> William Billy Butcherson, do we need him? No. No, we don't need him at all. If he existed to cause conflict between Winifred and Sarah, I think it would be great. But I don't know why he's in... I have no idea why he's in this movie. Okay, I've got a theory. Okay. All right, I think William Butcherson and Thackeray Binks were originally one character. And that Thackeray was the one who was having a relationship with Winnie and then had a little something-something with Sarah on the side... And that Mm -hmm. they took his sister as revenge on him. And it is his fault. He was playing around with witches, but his sister was the one who got burned. And it would make everything about his relationship with them more personal. They're not just the Mm, women. Interesting. They're not just the women who murdered his sister. They are the women he brought into his sister's life. And through his infidelity and through his behavior, I feel like you make that one character, because the punishment they give him for trying to save his sister is so big for what is really a, like, what else did they expect him to do? Why do they take it so personally? 
Mm-hmm. If he had more of a personal relationship with them, I think this movie might be a little less silly and a little less fun. Yeah. But when he's like, I failed my sister, I'm like, you tried, dude. You know, like, yeah. we yeah. all have people that we've loved and unfortunately lost, and if only we could have done more to save them. We all have that, but you gave it an A-plus gold star effort. Yeah, 300 years to try to keep somebody from lighting a candle is pretty big. I do think it would have been better if Thackeray had kept his old English in the present, because if he doesn't, then that suggests that he's been learning English, listening to people, and kind of adjusting his English as he goes. I think he has. Interesting. I think he has. Yeah, yeah uh, maybe so. I mean, because so he clearly has told somebody the story of how he got turned into a cat, because that's now part of the school curriculum. No one witnessed that story. <laughs> the Sanderson right. sisters are gone. So uh, at, interesting. At some interesting. point, he must have told someone that story, and it got written down. It. Yeah. You know. I mean, there are some other things about this. Well, maybe we'll talk about that in just a second. But let's talk about book really quickly. The Sanderson Sisters Living Spell Book. Is it a character or is it a MacGuffin? I think it's a MacGuffin with an eyeball more than it Uh is a character. Okay. So do you want to define MacGuffin for our listeners? They may not know what that is. So a MacGuffin is the item in your movie. It's not always an item, but in in this movie, it is an item. That is the thing your characters need to have that will explain away whatever you don't want to explain. It's the reason (laughs) things can happen. Oh, we've got the book, so it can happen. And that kind of is what a MacGuffin is. Winnie talks to the book as if it is a character, as if it's her lover. And it has Mm -hmm. an eyeball. But I don't get a sense of its personality or objectives. It really is just a book. Okay, fair enough. However, however, since we open this movie on a book, why isn't this the book telling the story? Why isn't the book telling us this book telling us the story of the Sanderson sisters as a somewhat sinister narrator. Yes. It'd be interesting to have a false narrator in this book. I agree with you. I think it's another missed opportunity. All right. Jay and Ice. The bullies. The bullies are formerly Ernie. Was his name Ernie? His name was Ernie, and he changed it to Ice. So in a way, they foreshadow the Sanderson sisters, right? And we could see more of Mac's weaknesses through them. What if Max is more defeated by them than he really is? And then he's tired of being bullied. He's tired of being pushed around. And then when he starts getting pushed around by the Sanderson sisters, well, then he finds his inner strength and ability to take care of them. Again, I think it's another missed opportunity. Oh, it's absolutely. Max never stands up to his actual enemy. I mean, like the witches Mm -mm. are his real enemies. They're the enemies of the movie. But we should get a moment where now that he's defeated witches, these two bozos are nothing to him. I mean, he takes their shoes, right? I guess he takes his takes his own shoes back. Yes. Right. But they're in a cage. That doesn't tell me that he's in some way manned up or found more courage or transformed. He just has the opportunity to get his shoes back. And by the way, those characters do not have the same size feet. I don't know how those shoes fit both of them. 
Well, they're magical shoes from L.A., right? There is one moment with the boys that drives me absolutely crazy. The witches have the potion, and they've got the bullies. And Sarah says, well, why don't we just drink the souls of one of these bullies? Because we're getting pretty close to daybreak, and that'll then we win. And uh, we can deal with our other enemies later. And like Winnie's like, nah, we're not going to do that. I really want to get that other one. It's such a weird writing corner for them to have written themselves into that Winnie's priorities have shifted because a little girl called her ugly and she can't wait two hours to get her revenge on that. She waited 300 years to come back to life. I would think patience would be one of her virtues. Or it could be that the joke was, well, these two guys aren't virgins, right? And then they were like, oh, we can't sit. That's maybe a little too far over the line. Those boys are definitely virgins. Yeah. I, I don't mean that in no, a no, shaming no, no, no. way. I'm just saying that what if that was the joke and they tried to gloss over it a little bit? Or, I don't know. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. I'm with you. The boys have the moment where they turn on each other when they think the witches are going to get them. Go for him! Go right. for him! Oh. <laughs> right, right, right. And also, if the witches had gone for Jay and Ice, it occurs to me that we would see the stakes of their success. They actually do it, and we would see more of that. That would raise the stakes a little bit when they go after Danny. So, yeah, just a thought. Jenny and Dave Dennison, who are the standard clueless parents <laughs> in this movie. I mean, they, they really strike me as like the same characters in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Kind of. I could see that. Yeah, the neighbor, kind of the, the neighbor parents, right? Like, yeah, yeah, that's it. I I don't even know why they bother to try to tell their parents about the witches thing, as if they'll be believed. We all know they're not going to be. Yeah, you know what would be great to see in a movie at some point? Because this is look. If my children came running up to me, terrified, shaking, witches yes. are after them, and they're adolescents and not toddlers, right? right. So, right. yeah. I don't believe in witches, not the witches of this hocus pocus sort of world. I don't believe in them. But in that moment, I'm going to give my kids the benefit of the doubt that something is after them. Right. And they are legitimately scared, and I'm going to defend them. But this movie, like, it's so weird. We're supposed to be scared that the witches are going to drain the souls of children. We've seen them done it before. And yet it also sets up a world in which we're supposed to be like, well, no one's going to really take the threat seriously. And maybe we shouldn't take it seriously either, because now the witches are singing I Put a Spell on You at the nightclub. And mom's dressed as Madonna, and dad's dressed as Dracula. And how silly is this movie? Tonally, it's inconsistent. Right. I know you wanted to talk a little bit about rules. Can we do that? Okay. Please. <laughs> what well, do screenplays have rules? Screenplays should have rules. They don't always have rules, but the best screenplays have rules. And I'm not even mm-hmm. talking about the rules of how to construct a screenplay, where you put your act breaks, n- none of that. I'm talking about logic, story logic rules. And this movie, the rules are consistently changing. What do the witches know about the modern world, and what don't they know? They don't know what a bus is, right? Mm-hmm. But when they get to the nightclub, they're like not really phased by all of the things that they see there. 
Right. Sometimes they adjust very quickly to the idea of, they're like, oh, this kitchen is a torture chamber. But at other times, they can, like, be in the school and not constantly be a fit. Sometimes they're fish out of water, and sometimes they're swimming just fine. Right. Do they need the book to cast magic? And the answer is, I guess sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. Don't. They don't. Right. Do they need brooms to fly? Well, apparently, you don't need a broom to fly. You can use a mop to fly. You can even use a vacuum cleaner yeah, to vacuum fly. Vacuum cleaner. Right, right. So what is it about those objects that make witches fly? And at some points, so there's one point where Max says, there's one thing I know that you don't know. And the witches are like, what's that? And he goes, daylight savings time. And they go, <laughs> and they're like, what's that? And there's no point in him saying daylight savings time because they don't know what daylight savings time is, but somehow they're capable of intuiting that somewhere across three centuries, somewhere around World War One-ish, like <laughs> humans decided to start manipulating the clock to have an extra hour of daylight to conserve electricity in the evening and start like, what hurts them and what doesn't hurt them? When they're in the water, they act like they're in pain. When they're in the lights of the car, they act like they're in pain. And they they writhe around, but they're not actually in pain because it was the power of suggestion. Yeah, it's... I'm just often going, what's true, what's not true? Here is the weirdest part of this movie in terms of the rules. Once they've escaped the witches the first time and they get to Binx's cave... They could just stay there for the rest of the evening, and come sunup, the witches are going to die. They don't need to go anywhere, those kids, because mm-hmm. the witches need to get the book. They can't get the book. Movie over. It's just my night with the cute girl and my sister underneath the cemetery in a cave with a talking cat. That's all they have to do. And right. then... At the end of the movie, during the climax, Allison suddenly turns to Max and says, wait, I just figured it out. They have until sunrise. And then she gives all the exposition that I've known for the last hour of the movie. It is a reveal to them. I've known it way too long to the point where I was like, wait, I guess. You didn't know this? I guess they never knew this. I guess the cat didn't tell them this off. I guess this is a revelation. So when you're writing your screenplay, you have to be consistent, right? And you also have to, I mean, like, if a character doesn't know something from the past and they're shot into the future, right, you have to painstakingly look at what are the things they're talking about. Consistently, what do they know and what don't they know? What have they learned? Because they've seen cars by the time that the the hood lights trick happens. So that shouldn't work for them anymore. Right. They've learned things along the way. And the rules about what their powers can and can't do, because they can do so much without that book. Right, right. What I would possibly put into there is they have powers without the book, but less control. So maybe they can bring a zombie back from the dead, but they can't control him the way that they would if they had the book. Right? Interesting. Some, yeah. But but yeah. Set, us, set us up a little bit more grounded. I have fun. In a lot of the individual scenes in this movie. I have a good time. But the whole is less than the sum of its parts. 
Yeah, the the part I was just getting ready to say the parts are greater than the than the sum, right? Yeah. All right. So pitch time. So we've got the new sequel, which just released on Disney Plus, as well as a Broadway musical in the works. Wow. What would we do with this material? Okay, I'm gonna go in a different. I've got I've got two. Oh, okay. Okay. So one would be Halloween bonus. Okay. Ha- Halloween bonus. One would be. <laughs> We go back into the past and see the Sanderson sisters as young girls, young witches, the young Sanderson <laughs> sisters. And maybe, maybe this is maybe you know, like, like that could be fun. That would be more of a kids' movie than this movie is. Three, three bad guy little girl witches you go to an elementary you school, and like, there's a couple of other kids in the elementary school. Who are like, I think these new girls are witches. I think that oh, would be funny. Fun. But here's my other one. We okay. go into the far future sci-fi 23rd century there are cyborgs and the sanderson (laughs) sisters arrive in like that world like the world of tomorrowland i would love to see that witches versus cyborgs witches versus robots oh i would have a ball with that mashup that sounds like a lot of fun i like that too andy what do you got well, I've always thought Disney... So, you know, we have the Haunted Mansion, right? hmm I've always thought that Disney needed a Hocus Pocus-themed haunted house. Ooh. I would love to go into the house of the Sanderson sisters. I mean, that's one thing we have not talked about in, in this movie, is how amazing the set design is. Oh, great. With the, you know, the green glow coming up from the basement, between the slats of moving floors, you have book opening up to a spell... And there's this objective to overcome evil before the sun comes up, right? I remember, and maybe you do too, Larry, the extraterrestrial alien encounter in Magic Kingdom or Stitch's greatest... It's now a Stitch thing, right? Which is now not a Stitch thing. I mean, it doesn't... Yeah, I don't think it exists as anything anymore. But it's a way that this could work. So you could have guests going back into time and entering Salem at 1693. The candle could be lit by a young guest, right? Like somebody in the crowd. And the Sanderson sisters sing their song to get the crowd into their house, right? And once inside the house, there's this potion created. And then the guests are all trying to get away from the sisters by maybe they fly on some broomsticks. They they feel the sisters shaking their shoulder harnesses and tickling their heads and whatever. And then you could be released into a Halloween town kind of gift shop. I love that. You know what else (laughs) would work just as, not not just as well, but like at like sort of like Disney Springs, a Hocus Pocus themed nightclub. Where the oh, Sanderson yeah. sisters do cabaret. That would be great. Oh, Fantastic. Love I it. I love it. Yes, you're right. There should be something. And maybe we'll get something. Maybe we yeah, will. Well, wh- maybe we will. Okay, so what movie are we tackling next week? Okay, we are going deep into the direct-to-DVD Disney's, Andy, because I <laughs> want to talk about Lion King 2, Simba's Pride. All right. Viewer beware, but uh, I I have strong, compelling reasons for exploring this sequel. I hope you'll join us for it. And we're we're not talking about one and a half, which is a different. So so actually, the movies start with Lion King, the first Lion King, then mm-hmm. Lion King two, and then Lion King one and a half. That is correct. Which is actually Lion King three, right? Well, it's actually one and a half, but it comes out third. So we're we're That's going right. in correct. We're going in that order, the order in which they came out. Awesome. Well. Friends, if you like what you're hearing, will you do us a favor and share this podcast with another Disney or classic movie fan? And if you write us a review 
We would be so pleased. You can check out our Once Upon a Disney Facebook page. You can tweet us at Andy Redwine or at Larry Brenner 6 Or you can drop us a line in our mailbag at onceuponadisneypodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, friends, see you real soon. See you real soon. Thank you.